Let me, uh, let me pray, and we're going to look into God's Word this morning. So, God, we, um, I repeat it every week, but I want to repeat it every week. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, and one of the ancient creeds says he's the Lord and giver of life. And we believe your Spirit is here inside each one of us who have opened our hearts to the Holy Spirit. But he's here around all of us. And you're able to speak to us, show us things. Open our eyes of our hearts, open the ears of our hearts in ways that we need. So Holy Spirit, uh, be active in our lives this morning and uh, show us and tell us what we need to see in here. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, uh, Wizard of Oz. So uh, just trivia, I asked my daughter this and she knew it. Who wrote The Wizard of Oz? Frank Baum, that was really quick. Baum spelled like Nussbaum, B-A-U-M, all right. Must be German, all right. Anybody have any idea when it was written? 1900. So anyway, so, um, but this, this is a scene from the movie, Wizard of Oz, and this is, a, this is the scene where Dorothy and, what, Tin Man, Lion, Scarecrow, and Toto um, were go, uh, going to request presence with Oz, and they had these requests for a heart, you know, all the things they wanted to go back to Kansas and uh, this is, so they go back after they do what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to kill the Wicked Witch. And if you remember the movie, and I didn't have, I don't want to put the clip in the movie, there's like fire coming up, the wizard's face, and, and uh, anybody remember what he says in the movie? I am, what's that? I'm the great and powerful Oz. In the book, it's actually great and terrible Oz, and so they must have figured for the movie it powerful is better than terrible. But he says it with this, you know, reverberation speaker, I am the great and powerful Oz. So he says that, and then he, what do you, why are you here? And they're scared to death because they're in the presence of Oz, and it has this supernatural kind of transcendent feel. And then they say, why? And he says, why are you here? Well, we're here because you made a promise to us. What did I, you know, back and forth, and then, she, they tell him that they killed the witch, and so yeah, they, they're saying, you have to keep your promises to us. And then he says, oh, well, you killed the witch. Give me a day to think about it. And then they kind of get a little bit irate. No, you told us you'd do this. You told us. You promised. You're the great and powerful Oz. You promised this. And then if you remember from the movie, and it's similar in the book, something falls, a screen falls down, and it's this little man. The, the book describes him as a bald little man. And the scarecrow runs at him. Now, who had the axe? Tin Man. Tin Man runs with the axe and says, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> and this small, bald man repeats, I am the great and terrible Oz. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> That's what the book says. It was kind of funny when I read it. I'm the good and terrible. So, but it's what, how he, that's who he thought he was. I want people to know I'm the great and powerful Oz. And then he is exposed as a fraud. But he had power over people because they thought all this supernatural, transcendent. But that's who he thought. I am the great and powerful us. All right. Question of the day. Who does God say he is? How does God describe himself? And I'm saying that because how you describe yourself. If we would have had a question this morning saying, describe yourself in four words. We'd all have certain words that we, we, we... Think about our identity, or we want our identity to be, and that's who we are. Oz chose great and terrible, or great and powerful. But how does 
God describe himself? Because part of the issue we have to wrestle with in our culture today is everybody has their own definition of God. Well, God's this, God's loving, God's this, God's this. The question is, how does God, who does God think he is? Because what does God say about himself? And that should have like a huge impact on how we understand who God is. And so the passage today is a passage where we're looking at uh, what God says about himself. And it's actually, a, a, their descriptive terms are repeated throughout the Bible. And it's one of those things like, okay, what is, who does God say he is? All right. So I've been doing a series called Wanting More, Want More. And its whole idea is Paul talks about, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And this series started, if you remember, back in November. At that time, I called it Christmas Revival, because wanting more and revival are kind of the same thing. And because we, we tend to think, and I'm speaking myself, and I think you, we tend to think, well, I've got my you know, ticket to heaven box checked off, so what, what more should I want? But the Christian life is more than just checking the box. It's a growing, wanting more of a relationship with Jesus. Greater, closer, just like human relationships. But Paul says, I want more. And this is Paul who'd been through everything and had incredible things, power through his ministry, but also suffer. But he says, I, I still want more. And I mentioned last week that even if, you're, if zero is, I don't really want more, and ten is superheroes of the Bible, maybe you're at a three, Maybe you could be at a four or a five. Maybe you could want more. And I mentioned the quote from a pastor from 80 years ago, A.W. Tozer, where he said, I want to want to want to know you more. That, maybe that's all you can say, but wanting to know God more. So that's kind of the, 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 the sense of what we're talking about. We're using the, one of the stories in the Old Testament. But I'm going to first jump to something, current events. Go to the next slide. Some of you may have seen it. It may have seen the stories about this revival at Asbury College, all right? Okay, it's, it's been on Fox News. I've seen it on CNN. So revival, all right? What's, so Asbury College is in Wilmore, Kentucky. It would be like God to do something supernatural in Kentucky, right? If you're a UK fan, it's like, all right? But it's Wilmore, Kentucky, and what... Uh, I'll just, I'll just read a few things that people are describing, and it actually is still going on. They had a chapel service one day, 10... 10 days ago, and students didn't leave, and they've been singing, confessing sin, and reading scripture like ever since then. And it's, uh, I'll read what somebody from the student, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to make a comment about revival here in a second re- regarding that, but one of the, wait a minute, I lost my page, here it is. This is what one of the, an editor of the student paper said, it's a Christian college, small town, small college. It says, right now, I think we've reached over 120 hours of nonstop worship, praise, confession, testimony, and scripture. No one expected this to happen. This was literally just the Holy Spirit choosing that day and this group of people. There's nothing overly special about Asbury College or the students or any of us, but the Holy Spirit just chose to fall down. Holy Spirit just chose to fall down and touch our hearts. People have asked us, was this planned? We're like, no. This was purely God moving and keeping people here and bringing more and continuing to cross state lines even in the country. So there's people that are traveling there from around the country. I'm not saying you should do that or we should. I'm just saying it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a big deal for a lot of people. It's a big deal for me when I see it from afar. It's like, okay, what is going on there? 
And um, if you read about it, some, some news sources try to report about it in a spiritual way. Other news sources I've read make it sound like it's some flashback to the 1920s revival services. And they make it sound like it was planned and, you know, you can just do this and you make this a revival. It's nothing that has to do with human planning. And they said that, and I've, know, I've known people, I know some people who are in that area that would say, no, this wasn't planned. And so um, I also, I'm just going to read a couple of things, and I, and I will, I'm going to, the passage today we're going to look at relates to all this, but so there's, there's a guy who's a professor of uh, evangelism and discipleship at a seminary in Louisville, and I, I knew him when I was in seminary, but he, he's written books about revivals, mainly revivals happening on campus. And I'll just give you a real good definition of revival I found lately. I've used different ones. Revival is when the presence of God passes by in a certain time in a certain place to certain people. The presence of God, the glory of God passes by for a moment in time, place, people, and there's significant fruit from that. People confess sin, they change their lives. People who have no interest in God all of a sudden become interested in God. So, but he, that's what he studies. And so here's a couple of things he said about this situation in Asbury. And I thought just, just to kind of give you a sense. So if you read about it, you kind of get a sense of where he said, this is a couple of things. He said, uh, and this guy is, he's like 65, I, I know, and he's a real quiet personality, so he's not prone to anything exaggeration. But he said the one thing he noticed first and foremost when he's there, he said the manifest presence of God is there. And you're like, what is that? What he's saying is, when you walk, he said, I visited the auditorium where they had the ongoing worship, and he said, you feel something different. And it's not emotion. The man, God has manifested himself there. There's not like fire in the ceiling or things like that, but there's a clear sense when you read about people. When I read from people or hear from people who I trust, and they say, something feels different when I come in this building. Um, also said that, one of the unmistakable signs of any revival is repentance. And he said, that's happening there. Students are confessing sin. Um, he said, the, the worship is not planned. It's not performances. It's just musicians leading in worship and people singing, people reading scripture. Um, but he just said he thinks it's the, if, if, if there is such a thing to say it this way, it's, it's the real deal. So I think God's there. So then I asked, and I had mentioned this last week, okay, that's really great. I mean, I'm not, I'm, but we, you know, then I can tend to think, well, you know, college students, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, but it's like, you know, but it's still God. My hope, my hunger would be to see how does, how would God do that in great revivals in past history? It affected all generations, all socioeconomic classes of a certain town, whether it was the Welsh revival of 1849 or the Azusa Street revival in Southern California in the early 1900s whether it was the Shantung Revival in China in the 1920s, it affected generations and socioeconomic people. People had no interest in God, all of a sudden were attracted to God. So that's, when I say revival, um, what's happening now there is an, is an evidence of that. But again, my hunger is, would, could, God, could God do more? And we can't, you can't create it. You can be ready for it, but we can't create it. So, now to the passage. Go to the next slide. Um, so the passage now is in Exodus 34, and this relates to revival. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of uh, uncanny or coincidental or whatever. Um, so, 
what's happened so far, the Israelites have been in Egypt. I'll say Egypt's over there this week. Egypt was a bad place for them. They were slaves. They cried out to God and said, God heard them. They were God's people. And I was like, what are, you, what are they doing in slavery? God, don't you? God hears them. And then he, through the leadership of Moses and the plagues against Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally says, get out, you can leave. They start going. They go through the Red Sea. Part, water's parted. God when Pharaoh and his armies, who were chasing them to get them to come back, got in the water. God floods the waters. They're all dead. So they've seen incredible things of God. They're on their way to modern-day Israel, the promised land. And then they get impatient with God. They build this golden calf idol. And I've said before, anybody, all of our golden calves are anything we want more than we want in God, whether that's financial security, relational f- fulfillment, um, more health, whatever. Anything you want more than God is an idolatry. And Aaron, you know, Aaron was saying about uh, what I said last week, that our desires aren't the problem, but it's when our desires get disordered. When all of a sudden, my desire for financial security or relational fulfillment become number one, and God or pursuing Jesus is like, that's eh, down there somewhere. But it's easy for that to happen. You know? so, so it's not... Uh, but so they, they gave it this, they gave themselves the golden calf because they're like, we got to have it represented to them uh, relational fulfillment or represented for them f- uh, financial security. That's what they were, that's kind of the whole, I, I, that, uh, that idolatry. God gets angry. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks about what does it mean God gets angry. But God gets angry. The people repent. All right, they turn from sin. Moses prays for them because God's like, I'm not going with you anymore. I don't know if he used that tone of voice, but anyway. He said, I'm not going to travel with you anymore. I'll send an angel because I think I would destroy you because and it wasn't God being impatient or uh, hot-tempered, um, but it was God being holy and just and righteous and kind and good. But then Moses said, no, you have to go with us. We, don't send us unless you're with us. And the people knew that too because they had seen what God had done when he was with them. So they don't send us. And then Moses, in his conversation with God, says, one more thing. I have one more request. This is, like, really, really important. And then he asks this question. Go to the next slide. He says to God, okay, show me your glory. And that's what I talked about last week. God, he says, okay, God, if you're going to go with us, I want to know, know who this is that's going with us. I know you by name. You know, I, I can state all the right doctrines about God, but God, I want to I want to experience you. I want God you to show me your glory. Think about in a really false kind of way. Think about the Dorothy and the others in the throne room of Oz who was trying to display his glory through, you know, mechanisms and false means. But that's what he was hoping to create. But Noah's like Noah, Moses. It's like, hey, God, I, I want to see your glory. I want to experience you. I want, I want to see something of you that's supernatural because I want to know who you are. Now, I want to stop here, too. This is, I, I've, I've read a number of books about revival and listened to sermons, even sermons that are like 70 years old. They still have them recorded. And they put them online. And there was one pastor that said, and, I, and I, I disagree with him on this. He said he thinks Moses was wrong to say this. And actually, when I was listening to the car, I actually said out loud to nobody except, the, except my, my CD player, I disagree. I said it out loud. I disagree. He said, no. He said, 
to, to want that is, is simply the human part of us that wants drama and extravagance and we want spectacular. And he was kind of saying, uh, great pastor, by the way, this guy who I was listening to, great. And a lot of, this is the only thing about a dozen sermons I've listened to. I don't know. He said, it, he, thinks it's, he thinks Moses was wrong to ask for that, but God just kind of, okay, I'll do it anyway. But is it wrong for us to want some kind of experience with God? No. God's meant to be experienced. Now, if we make that experience an idol, well, I have to have this, God. If you don't do something dramatic for me, I'm done with you. But it's like in human relationships. We, I want to experience other people. I want, I want human touch. That's, I want experience. If, if, you're mar- if, if, you're, if, if, if my wife and I's marriage had no touch, then someone would say, well, you're still married. She still loves you. It's like, yeah, but I, want ex- I need the experience. We all do. We understand that. So for Moses, they show, show me your glory is not, is not some kind of dark, sinful desire that God's like, okay, I'll show you. Anyway. No, it's, it's wired in every one of us. We want to see something that's supernatural. We want to experience God in supernatural ways. Not, not 24-7, not, but we just want to know that he's real. We have all this doctrine in our head, right? Well, I know that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for me. I'm saved. That's, that's all good. But you read about women and men throughout the past, even in, in, in Scripture, but even throughout history, often they had experiences with God that were life-changing for them. Experiences maybe meaning just a day or maybe a few hours where they knew something was real from the invisible world that they experienced. And so it's not wrong, and I said this last, I said this last week, it's not wrong for this to be a prayer to, you, to God. God, show me your glory. I want in glory meaning, show me the substance of who you are. Show me the completeness of who you are. And when people in Scripture saw the glory of God, I showed different examples last week. More often when God showed his glory, people fell down on their knees and on their faces. They were overwhelmed with something that was real in that time and place when God met them. And so when you read about like the revival at Asbury, people are responding to something that is real in that time and place, and they're experiencing and responding to God. All right. So, again, simple definition of revival is when the glory of God passes by. It can, it can pass by an individual, but in the context of how we talk about socially, it passes by a group of people in a specific time and a specific place. And it's happened throughout history. Pentecost was the greatest revival ever in the, in the in the Bible, but it's also happened throughout history in various, various times around the world where God manifested himself in a way that people knew something was different. It wasn't just emotional experience. It was something was different, and the invisible world somehow entered into the visible in a way that people knew, okay, something's, God's real, all right? So, so Moses asked that question. He's like, show me your glory. So, I mean, God doesn't say, okay, what, this, is what, this is what, just leave it on this slide right now. So this is what God's reply is. And I'll, God says, it's okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So he says, yes, I'll show you my glory. And God defines his own glory as his goodness. I will make my goodness to pass by you. And I will call out my name, Yahweh, Hebrew word for 
the Lord, Yahweh. I will call it my name before you. So God said, yes, I'll show you my glory, my goodness. And then he says, I will. And the Lord continued, look. He says to Moses, stand near me on this rock. I, I don't know how to visualize that because I don't know what Moses saw. It wasn't a man standing there, but the Lord said, stand by me. So I don't know if it was a cloud. I don't know if it was fire. I don't know, but Moses saw something in. This is a weird meter. Either it happened or it didn't. If it didn't, then we're wasting our time pursuing the God of the Bible. If it happened, then there's something that Moses saw and experienced, and God said, come over, stand over next to me. And Moses, so Moses on the mountain all this time. He says, as, as, stand on this rock as my glorious presence passes by. So God actually passed by Moses. I will hide you in the crevice of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God said, you're not going to see me when I've passed by. But then he goes, then God says, but then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from my, behind. But my face will not be seen. And then God adds, because no one can see me and live. So there's something about, I mean, you look at the Wizard of Oz thing. They're all shaking before Oz. The tin man's clattering and shaking. And the lion, I think the lion faints at one point. Like, because it's the sense of when you're in front of something glorious and powerful and great, fear or awe and reverence take over. And so God says, nobody can see me and live. It says, then the Lord came down. So this is Moses is on the rock. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses. And the Lord called out his own name, Yahweh. So God's talking about himself. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. Now grab those cards I have on your chairs. Because this is what God called out. This is God saying who he is. Oz says, I'm the great and terrible, great and powerful. Blah, 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 but he's shallow and fake. This is God saying who he is. Go to the next slide. It's on the next, this next slide, too. So this is who God says he is. And I, I, we're going to talk about parts of this today, parts of this next week. Because as I read this this week and I was listening and listening to sermons and reading stuff, I thought maybe we all need to kind of fine-tune our understanding of who God is. And maybe, maybe we don't understand it so we don't relate to him in a right way because we make him like something that he's not. But this is what God says about himself. And this is interesting. This is God calling out his own name. Yahweh, the Lord. Now, in the, in the actual Hebrew, it just says Yahweh, Yahweh. But Yahweh is the Lord. So some translators translate it this way so you get a better sense. But, and Yahweh in the Hebrew is just, uh, I think it's three Hebrew letters. And there's no vowels in Hebrew, but they put little vowel points in there. Anyway, but a, 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 a devout Jew, extremely devout Jew to this day, will not pronounce the name Yahweh. They say it's too holy to pronounce, and they just abbreviate it, Y-W-H. So it's too holy to pronounce. So anyway, so God, God's using a name that, that has a sense of heaviness and glory to it, all right? Yahweh, the Lord. And then he, he's describing himself. He's not great and terrible. He says, I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. Some versions say steadfast love, but I like the loyal love translation. And then he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is, again, this is God giving his 30-second, this is who I am. I forgive iniquity. I forgive rebellion and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So some people are like, whoa, whoa, I thought God was forgiving. 
We'll talk about and kind of give that a different nuance to that. I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents on their children and their grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So at the end of this, where God says, basically, behaviors have consequences. There is forgiveness, but there's points where God, and we'll talk about this in a number of weeks, God actually allows people to their own choices, and they walk into their own destruction. God doesn't destroy them. God walks in, they walk into their own destruction. Because God says, if you live the way I tell you to live, you will have life and joy and peace and wholeness and fulfillment. But if you continue to resist me, I'm, I'll just let you do that. Right? And it's not because he doesn't love, because he does. He's like, well, I, if they, they can walk into their own destruction. But today, we're going to focus on just the two, two of the words in the beginning when he says, Yahweh the Lord, compassionate and gracious. So that's, that's today, compassionate and gracious. And what does that mean? Because it's like, well, you know, loving and kind, whatever. But let's get a sense, because again, this, this, this uh, phrasing or description of God is repeated often in the Psalms. Some of the prophets say it. Some of the people will remind God, God, you said you're gracious and compassionate. God, you said you're slow to anger. So this obviously was kind of a core understanding throughout the rest of the Bible accounts of what people understood God to be like and therefore Jesus to be like as well, all right? So first one is gracious. Let's look at the word gracious. All right, go to the next slide there. I think we have, do I have one that says gracious? Go to the next one. Gracious, yeah, this is gracious. So Yahweh the Lord, I'm, he said I'm gracious, all right? So the word gracious here actually uh, comes from a, a, a a Hebrew word that's related to the womb. I'm doing this. I don't have a womb. Why did I do that? This is stupid. All right. The womb, because the compassionate characteristic of God, which he says as his first characteristic, is like a tender love of a mother toward a vulnerable, helpless child. All right. It's a tender, vulnerable, tender love, deep passion for a child who's unable to take care of themselves, they're vulnerable, right? It's that kind of love God has for us. So the, the, the way it's described in another place, it's an intense emotion. It's not just, oh, I love you. It's an intense emotion. So like there's a story in the Old Testament where this concept is used, and you might remember it. Solomon has two women come to him, and, and they both had had babies, and one of the women's baby died. But her, she actually claimed this one was her baby. If you remember the story, it's, it's part of even cultural. But they both died. They both come to Solomon and they say, this is my baby. No, this is my baby. And then Solomon says, well, okay, here's my solution. We're going to cut the baby in half and give each you of a half. So the mother, the real mother, moved by, go back to compassion. I think I'm the first one. Moved by being compassionate. The real mother was compassionate. She said, no. Give the child to her. Because she was stirred by her motherly compassion for this helpless child, even to the point where she'd give that child up. So that's, that was the same word. That, and that describes who God is, compassion in that sense. He has, this, he has this emotional, God is moved by his emotions. So when the children of Israel were in Egypt, Egypt's over here, and they're crying out to God because of their slavery. The Bible tells us God's moved by his compassion for them. 
So it's not just emotion. It's emotion that yields the action. And it's a compassionate, it's an action that he shows toward us, even though we don't always feel it. There's actually, in Isaiah, there's a point where God's, God's people had kind of really done some stupid things. And, but there's a point where they, they say to God, you've deserted us, you've forgotten us. And I'll stop there, because I can't imagine, I think all of us have felt that at some time with God. You've forgotten me. You're not around anymore. I don't feel it. You've deserted me. You've forgotten me. So think of times where you may have felt that. God's not involved anymore. He's deserted me. You may not say it that way, but we've all felt that way. And this is God's response. Again, keeping the word compassion in mind. God says, never, never can a mother forget her nursing child. I'm never going to forget you. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were even possible, I will not forget you. So it's this God, one of the first descriptions God says of himself is this deep emotional love for us. And he he never forgets us. He's always engaged. He always feels deeply, just like a mother feels deeply about baby, small child. So God, and God displays that compassion in the person of Jesus because the Bible tells us he's the compassion of God come in flesh. And you might even remember the time where Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he's mourning because people aren't responding to him. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you rebel against God. How I wish, like a mother hen, I could gather you unto me. So Jesus has this same emotional compassion for us. And think about when I'm saying that, think about the times when you feel most vulnerable or you feel afraid, insecure, unable to take care of yourself like an infant. And think about the times where you might, and I know I have, I haven't said it this way, but you think, is God even here anyway? Has he forgotten me? Kind of like Isaiah, forgotten me? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. And God's like, no, I never would. How could I do that? I'm always thinking about you. So even though you don't think he's thinking about you, God says, first thing is true about me. I, I'm stirred by deep emotion toward each one of you. And I see everything you're going through. There's nothing you're going through that I'm not aware of. Nothing. And I'm completely engaged and working on your behalf, even though you don't think so. But that's the first thing God describes himself as compassionate. Then he describes himself as gracious. I'm compassionate and gracious. So again, this, it's interesting that God didn't use, as his own description of Moses, he didn't say, I am powerful and terrible and wise. Well, he starts with, I'm good and I'm gracious. I'm, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. Now, so this, this, this word, when he says I'm gracious, it kind of has the sense of, uh, it's related to the word delight. Or favor. So it's this sense when God says, I'm gracious, it means I do things for you because I delight in you, because I show you favor. All right? And so some examples of this in the Bible, there's a time where Esther, if you know the Bible story, but if you don't like Esther was uh, in the court of the king, king of Persia. They didn't, the king of Persia had decided through some, some underhanded ways he was going to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. 
Esther was a Jew. She is encouraged by others. She's a beautiful woman. She was actually part of the king's harem. She's a beautiful woman. She approaches the king at the risk of her own life. And she asks him to be gracious toward her people and relent on the proclamation to kill all the Jews. And the Bible tells us that the king, because he delighted in Esther, gave her what she asked for. She didn't deserve it. She had no means to claim it. But because of his delight in her and his favor toward her, he gave her what she asked for. All right? Another example in the Bible, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and Jacob deceived Esau to the point where he got the birthright. He got the family inheritance by deceit because Jacob was the younger of the twins. And so you could, and then he flees, and his whole life he's running away because he's, he's sure Esau justifiably is angry at him. He stole my birthright. He stole my inheritance. Jacob finally comes back, meets Esau after many, many years. He's scared to death because Esau, justifiably, could get vengeance on him. So what does Jacob do when he goes to Esau? He asks him to be gracious. I don't deserve this from you, Esau. I deceived you. But would you be gracious to me? Would you find favor in me as your brother, your twin? Would you find delight in me as your brother? Would you give me something I don't deserve? And that is, would you forgive me? Would you reconcile with me? And Esau's like, yes. But that's grace. That's graciousness. And that's how God is like. Because he delights. The Bible actually said he delights in us. And he'll give us what we don't deserve because he delights. Not because he's like, okay, sure. He delights in us. And then to bring it back to the Moses story, when the people do the whole golden calf, and God's like, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. What does Moses do? He asks God to be gracious. These are your people, God. You said these are your chosen people. Because of your delight in them, give them what they don't deserve. Give them grace. Give them favor. And God does that. So it's interesting how even you know, God's response to that. But Moses asked for that. And then in the New Testament, we read that Jesus becomes grace. John, the Gospel of John talks about Jesus being full of grace. He's full of the characteristic. Go back to the, sorry, the other one for a second here. He's full of the character trait that he will give you and me what we don't deserve because he takes delight in us. Not because he's good and terrible and powerful. Not because, oh, well, I'll do this for you, but you owe me. It's because he takes delight in us, his sons and his daughters. And he offers us forgiveness and favor. Favor. Even though we don't deserve it. So the fact that God describes himself that way as gracious, again, think, maybe it's not hard for a lot of us, think about times where you've chosen actions, behaviors that were sinful. I think of times in my own life, and you think of those situations, and you think, I know what I deserve from God. He must hate me. I know what I deserve from God. He's going to punish me. I know what I've been doing and what I've done. 
And one of my analogies years ago, when I was, this is way back when I was in college, that for some reason I viewed God as a guy with a big stick. And he's going to hit me because I deserve it. You know, I'll just bend over and take the punishment. I deserve it, right? I deserve it. But the Bible tells us that the graciousness of God is enfleshed in Jesus, who's full of grace. And I don't know how God did this or what happened exactly. I can't remember it all, but I remember I had this image then. No. God swings the stick, but it lands on Jesus on the cross, and I get favor. I, I, God, God doesn't remember that. What I, he's forgiven me, and he's going to set me free. So the fact that God describes himself first and foremost as compassionate and gracious, next we're going to look at God being slow to anger. And you're like, what? You might be like, oh, no, why is God even angry at all? No, but we'll talk about that. But God's compassionate and gracious toward each one of us. He's compassionate and that he's stirred like a mother toward us when our frailties and our weaknesses at times we, we feel insecure and scared, but he's compassionate and he's also gracious that he gives us what we don't deserve. And I, I, maybe you've heard that. Oh, grace is getting from God what you don't deserve. But, but what this week has helped me understand is it's but because he delights in us. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I'll give it to you. You don't deserve it, but I'll give it to you anyway. No, it's because he delights in us. It's his delight that's driving that, not his, oh, well, justice, all right? So now we'll go to this last verse. It leads into communion, but this is, so Jesus becomes that. If that's who God is like, and I, this is actually uh, waterproof, tearproof paper. So put it somewhere where you see it. We'll be talking about this for the next couple of weeks. Um, again, because I feel... If we want to see the glory of God pass by, this is, what, this is the glory of God. These characteristics this is who he is. And when that passes by, these things flesh out. So, um, but the New Testament tells us the word became flesh, Jesus. We lived among us. He was full of grace. That's the word we just talked about. He's full of, he's graciousness. He's, because he delights in us, he shows us favor. And the truth part we talked about in a couple of weeks is that's, um, that's the faithfulness term in this passage. But he was full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory, John says. We've seen it. We've seen this heavy, weighty, powerful sense of who he is. We've seen his glory, and it's the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So I, I think the, 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 the thing I was thinking when I was doing this week and um, getting ready to read, and I was reading stuff and preparing for this, I guess the, the question I left with for me and for you is why would I not follow Jesus with all my heart? This is how God is toward me. Why do I still hold on to this anxiety, to this fear, to this sin? Why, why would I not let go of that? This is how Jesus treats me. He loves me. He's not going to punish me. But if I, if I repent... And when I say repent, I don't mean just if you're doing something that's a sin. I mean even like things that you know, if you like if your if your desires are disordered and you know your desire for relational fulfillment is bigger than your desire for God, that's a repentance issue. If your desire for financial security is greater than your desire to know God, that's a repentance issue. So any of those issues. But my question is, if this is what God is like, why would I why would I not why would I hold on to those? So we. Uh, Every week we do community at Exodus, and we do this because, again, we're not, 
we're not, Christianity isn't a, isn't a moralist religion. It's a religion of the supernatural, and it's all driven by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So every week, Jesus tells us to remember this, and we remember his death for us as a function of the mother-like compassion of God in, embodied in Jesus and the I find delight in you graciousness Jesus shows toward us. So this, this is his gifts. In some certain liturgies I've heard in Anglican churches or Catholic churches, they might say, the gifts of God for the people of God. It's the gifts of God for the people of God because it's the gift that Jesus finds delight in every single one of us, every single one of you that has the spirit of Jesus in you, Jesus finds delight in you. So he gives this out of his delight in you and his deeply felt emotion of our frailties. He loves you. He loves all of us. All right. So let me pray, and Aaron's going to come up and lead us in a song, and and, uh, we'll take here. So Jesus, grateful, maybe it's kind of a too obvious a word, but we, we are grateful that you're compassionate and gracious toward us, that you're not good and terrible. You're not, you don't define yourself primarily by being powerful and overwhelming to us, although you are. But you define yourself as God defines himself as compassionate and gracious toward us. So Jesus, you give us these gifts of your body and your blood. As we take this into us, we take it with gratitude that you, by your spirit, Love us deeply like a mother loves a child, and then you find great delight in us, and you treat us according to your delight, not according to our um, silly and stupid actions. So, Jesus, we love you. We're grateful. We, we will follow you. We follow you. Um, because why wouldn't we, given who you are? And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.